Welcome to Circuit Break from MacroFab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, K-maps, Smith charts, and engineering education. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Stephen Craig and Parker Billman. This is episode 412. Circuit Break from MacroFab. So Chris Church, who is the CEO and the other co-founder of MacroFab, is giving a talk at Orb Weaver 2024. I think it's on January 10th, if I recall. Chris will be giving a discussion about digital manufacturing platforms and how they are moving from kind of this early maker engineering-focused platforms to being whole organization empowerment, I guess, is a good way to put it, where handling more supply chain and um, more roles like that, which is kind of interesting when I read that. uh, I was like, oh, that's exactly the journey Macrofab has done. And kind of like, uh, what's another one? Like Zometry is another that's kind of had that same kind of journey where started off, you know, catering to makers and small engineers and then expanding out into this kind of like handling the entire supply chain for whatever you're building. Well, obviously the industry is big enough now to have a, a conference surrounding that. Yeah, because that's what Orb Weaver, at least the the little couple paragraphs I've read about that that event is is about. Where is that? Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's in Pennsylvania. I wonder if it's going to be streamed. Yeah, because I would actually like to watch. That would be really fun. They're usually streamed nowadays. I'll ask Chris tomorrow if it's streamed or not. January 11th. Yeah, January 11th. All right. What are we going to be talking about today? Over the past uh, handful of weeks, we've had a uh, kind of a chat going on in our discourse uh, that has been spawned from uh, what we've talked about here on the podcast. Uh, A handful of weeks ago, we mentioned K-Maps and Smith Charts in one of our uh, podcasts, and that kind of spawned something, some interesting chat going on. K-maps being Carnot maps in digital logic circuits, uh, kind of, <laughs> I don't know, it triggers a handful of people, I uh, found, and sort of like the, in my opinion, the analog equivalent of K-maps is Smith charts, because it's yet another odd visualization that you have to learn, and it seems very clumsy and clunky at first. And so it's been a really fun conversation in the in the chat, and it's brought up a topic I wanted to chat about, which was challenges in electrical engineering, but but specifically in terms of how your professors impacted you in your classes. And so as kind of an example, for longtime listeners of this show know that I'm not that much of a digital guy. I don't dislike digital electronics, but it's I don't really lean towards it. And most of my design work doesn't go towards it. And most of my jobs have not been geared towards that. And uh, this conversation we've been having in the uh, discourse has really brought to light something that I hadn't really thought of before. But I had a absolutely abysmal professor for my digital logic class in college. In fact, almost all of my digital stuff in college had terrible professors. And I never really put two and two together that perhaps the professor had a really strong influence on my entire career and my enjoyment of digital logic. So I'm actually curious, Parker, if you have specific examples or if you think any of your professors have had an impact in the same way. So what's interesting about 
the digital logic class, like if you talk like digital logic 101 at the school I went to, it was actually self-paced. Right. And so there wasn't really a professor. There was like three professors that ran that one class. And one of those professors would just be there when the class was, quote, in session. And then there'd be like six TAs or something like that. And so you would go down to like the literally the lowest floor basement of the building. And there was this room that you would walk into and suffer for two hours and then leave. It's all self-taught. So there wasn't actually a proper class. So you got the book and they're like, there are going to be like 20 tests, right? Like there's like 20 tests. You get to pick when you take them and you get to pick your cadence. And uh, that was it. That was how did, I learned K-maps. Did, did you have any other classes like that? Because I, I didn't have a no. single class that took that kind of format. And in one of my internships in college, I roomed with a guy who went to UT and he was telling me about that digital logic class, which I, it was a few years before you. So it was still the same then. And I thought that was strange that oh, uh, yeah, it, it was, was weird. The entire class was self-paced. And it's a, it's a freshman class. Now I was a, basically a junior at that point. Cause I switched majors so I kind of already figured out at that point how to how, how to college works. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I got in there and I'm like, and the first thing I asked him, like, how long? First thing I asked, I asked one of Tia's, like, I asked, like, how long does it take each test? Right. Because you have to like, si you had to like sign up for a spot to take a test. And they had this like whole other side of the room that was like old booths that you took your test in. And they're like, each test takes like an hour to do. So I'm like, okay, you have 20 of those class days are taken up by tests now. Because basically what would happen is I, I think it was partially structured a way of like you had to learn how to self-manage your hours. Because at the end, like you can be like, oh, I can just take all the tests like at the last week. No, there was not enough hours to do that hmm. to even uh, – to take all those tests. And uh, I, I bet a lot of people failed out just from waiting. Yes. I want to say about a third of the people in my class were retaking it. Wow. And they were probably on top of the ball the second time around. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I think I finished that class in, it basically, I was like, it was halfway through. I think it was like right past the first midterms of all the other classes. And then I finished that whole class all the way up. So I didn't have to go back to it again. But again, I got K-Maps kind of like right out the gate. It made sense. Boolean logic made sense to me. And I never really did it before uh, that class. But I basically looked at it as a, oh, it took about like one day of studying per test. And so I would go in, I'll spend two hours studying. And then the next session, I would just go take that test. I just yeah. did that cadence. I knocked it out. Okay. Well, and so I didn't think it was too bad. I see that being useful. I didn't think it was too bad, but granted, I had already three three and a half, four semesters underneath my belt already at college. So if I was a freshman, I probably would have, you know, blew it off until the very end and have to retake it. <laughs> but didn't have to. So that's how I learned. That was like digital, like K-Maps and stuff. But 
one thing we've talked about before in this podcast is Bodhi plots, which lives in K maps and Smith charts territory for me. And I had the worst professor for that at all. I, I still believe like I must have missed something because I had no idea what that class was about. Cause it was, um, I think it was like linear filter design or something like that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And all I remember from that class was he would write an equation. Like I must've missed like a day, like at the very beginning where he like, like the most the critical was. day. Yeah. Where like he, exp- like, and I even, I remember reading the syllabus and still not figuring out what's going on. Wow. And there wasn't a TA for that class. And that professor, I guess never really helped me anyways. He would write an equation up on the board, and then we had to spend the whole class like figuring it out and then writing a Bodhi plot for it. That would be like the class. And then there would always be like the trick you had to figure out on your own to solve that equation to turn it into a Bodhi plot. And I, I was like, I hate this class so much. This is the to me, it felt like I wasn't really learning anything relevant to engineering. It was learning tricks. And I'm like, man, if I want to learn tricks, I could be a magician. <laughs> yeah, I, I can totally see that because a lot of the algebra that goes behind a transfer function, you know, doing the Laplace transform and then writing it all out, you can, it's not that hard to actually set up the entire circuit and, and start the Laplace transform. And then you wave your hands over the equations and they, they go poof and they turn into first order or second order equations. Yes. And then, and yes. then, and, and that's the part that is the oh, most frustrating. me so much. It's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's frustrating because there's not, because like college up to that point had been, here is the, your, your, your initial conditions. Here's your setup and here's your equations that flow through to the end. And you're the person who flows them through. You're the person who writes the algebra and makes it happen. But, as soon as you get to Bode plots for whatever would transfer for functions, the whole goal isn't for you to flow them through. It's for you to massage them into a different state to, to get the whole equation to look like something else and to pull constants that out. You know how to. Yeah. And so it's, it's a yeah. different way of doing math, which is different because they have an answer, but you don't chug it out to the answer in a way you just set them up into a format. It, it's really, it's, it's that meme where it's like you draw a circle and then draw the owl. That's what Bodhi plots are. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. just keep reshuffling the original equation until it, it lands in the format you want. And then you go poof. It turns into the Bodhi plot. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's almost like you function, have a bunch yeah. of lines or a bunch of like you're drawing an analogy. You have a bunch of elements on a page. And if you shuffle them around, it'll look like an owl. And you know yes. it needs to look like an owl. And so you shuffle them until it looks like an owl, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I could see that being. Yeah. It, it just didn't really feel like it just felt like I wasn't learning anything constructive or useful because it was it was literally like half of the logic was it was like literally like, don't worry about it. Just get into these one of these formats and it'll be cool. And that's it. It, it was like uh, we talked about this before. I had an engineer, a, a math proof class. Yeah. And it, that was similar where it was a class once a week and you had to present your proof. Like she, the professor would pick three people to present the proof for that week and different ways of doing it. 
And they were really, really hard. But by the fourth week, I figured out what was going on. It was, there would be a proof that you had to solve. And then the proof from the next week would give you the tools to easily, more easily solve the previous one. <laughs> so you and I'm ahead, like, right? oh, I can just read the chapter ahead and I can learn what this new tool is that will enable me to solve the previous proof more easily. And she called me, the professor called me a cheater for doing that. I literally just read ahead in the book. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is kind of bull. Because I was like, if, if that's literally our way of learning or teaching, I, I was just like, I'm not a big fan of that. Like, you should be able to use all the tools you have available to you to solve the problem yeah, and not just artificially limit your tools. So, you know what's funny? Slightly back to Bodhi plots real quick. I literally spent the entirety of today working on a circuit design that was for a graphic equalizer. And uh, this graphic equalizer, in, in general, I know what kind of um, bands I want in it and I know their gains, but it's easier to just design the circuit through Bode plots and simulation than it is to write everything out. So simulate it, do all the Bode plots, and I can kind of figure everything out. And the majority of the day, what I was doing was a practical or, or, or where, where, where practical meets the uh, the actual simulation. Because the thing is, with this kind of graphic equalizer, I'm using slide pots for the design. And the only slide pots that are available are either audio taper or linear taper. So, you know, a straight line or a pseudo curved line in a way, both of which are terrible for graphic equalizers. They, they give you a really terrible response. Like a linear pot, if you move the slider on a linear pot between 10 and 90%, you won't get much of a change. You'll get almost all the change in the output in the last, 10% on the top or 10% on the bottom, which is garbage. Nobody really wants that. And the solution for that is to use what's called a W taper pot, which a W taper pot, if you, if you think of a slide pot cut in half as, as two different sides, you have a logarithmic on one side and you have an anti-logarithmic on the other side. That makes for a really smooth response across the entire thing. Now, th the thing about it is W taper slide pots are just, you can't buy them. Like if you want a W taper pot, get ready to buy a thousand of them uh, because you have to have a whole manufacturing run done for you. And I don't need a thousand of them. Yeah. You have to pay for someone to spin up a line. Right. So I spent the majority of today working out unique ways to convince a linear pot slide pot to act like a W taper, all doing Bodhi plots to, to work that out. And so, all of this in kind of relation back to what we were talking about with professors and their impact on us. I absolutely loved my filter class. I loved my transistors and filter class because it was that was kind of one one together. And in fact, it's strange on the AM campus, ECE 325 was called electronics. That's that was just the name of the class. It was just called electronics. And it was legendary. Everyone thought it was the hardest class out there. Like, and it was taught by this guy named Aiden Carcillian. And uh, he, he was just a hard ass and he was a tough professor. And everyone was like, if you get a C, just give it a thumbs up and get out of there. Cause that class sucks. I freaking loved that class. I ended up getting A in that class and I spent time with him in, in the, uh, uh, in professor hours talking 
just random electronics and stuff. I just, I ate that class alive, even though it was hard. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe I and had something there previously where I came into that class enjoying the topic beforehand. But I don't think it had to do with the difficulty of the class because that class was hard as hell. That class was ridiculous. In fact, I remember on the, on the final for that class, there was one equation. It was an entire, it, it was a made up circuit, but it was effectively an amplifier that had a bunch of transistors in series. And he wanted the entire transfer function for the whole thing. And so I was like, okay, I'll do this. I start writing it out. I run out of paper and I had, I had my paper turned landscape. I was writing the equation. So I ended up getting a second piece of paper and writing the equation further landscape on the second one. And I taped them together and handed him that as the equation. And, and I wasn't writing big at the same time. It was just, he was just being mean on the final and trying to make this equation that was so gigantic that nobody could get it right. And, and so like, I don't know, there was something really fun about that class. Now, did did you get it right? I don't know. I got an A in the class. Actually, what's funny is I I walked into the final with a B and the professor told me, he was like, the only way you can get an A in this class is if everyone gets a C on the final and you get an A and I got an A in the class. So I don't know. (laughs) So like, I never actually got my grade for that, for that one exam, but I got an A in the class. So that was fun. But, but yeah, that class was all about, you know, transfer functions and, uh, and Bode plots and, and whatnot. But to kind of contrast that, my digital logic class, I don't even, I don't even know what we learned in that. We, That's like the Bode clock, the, the filter class I had. I had no idea what I was trying to learn. Yeah, I tried to pay attention. I couldn't tell you what the guy was trying to tell me. It was, it was awkward. And, and he tried to put everything into an analogy. And he used chickens as an analogy for digital circuits where you would shock a chicken and it would flick its leg. And that was his way of describing digital electronics. You shock a chicken and its leg flicks or whatever. It's a very aggy way of describing electronics. Apparently he had been doing this for a long time. He was known as a chicken professor in in the double E. Yeah. Because of that. And a few years after I left, he apparently changed to snakes and you shock a snake and it flicks its tail. It's like, what? What, Like, what what? was it with flicking or tail or leg? Like, what does that represent? I think like a chicken being alive is zero and electrocuting a chicken in it like freaking out as one. I don't know. See, like I just, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know what this guy was trying to do. And on top of that, I remember the second exam, there was a question on it. That was one of those really dumb logic questions that was like, you know, Tom and Sarah and, and Timothy, you work at a pizza shop and Tom can only work on Thursday and Friday and Sarah can work four days a week, but she's flexible and blah, blah. And you know, it had all of these rules and it was like, create a schedule for all these people. It's like, how was, I get that this is logic and I get that you're going for that, but why is this part of digital logic? The, you know, the only thing from that entire class that I took away that I, I really liked on the final exam, there was a question that had a really simplified version of a microprocessor or a microcontroller on it. And uh, 
all of the individual pieces were all numbered and labeled and it said write an algorithm to do something. I don't remember. Maybe it was add two numbers or something like that. And you got points if you did it in fewer clock cycles. So like that I feel was really useful. It had a working register. It had memory. It had the ALU. It had all of these things where, okay, great. Now like this is all coming together but like that's the one thing from the entire class where i was like okay this this is useful this is digital logic this isn't chickens flicking their legs you know <laughs> so i googled shocking a chicken example electronics and the first response is shocking technology for tenderizing meat <laughs> the process known as hydrodyning uses underwater shock waves from a high energy explosive charge to tenderize meat with a pressure as high as 25,000 pounds per inch. Nothing to do with electronics, actually, it seems. Or digital electronics. Or digital electronics. <laughs> What's interesting is um, Dr. Valvano was my embedded systems professor. And I've, I think I took like three classes from him event by the end of my uh, years in college. And that's the, that might be why I always did really well in his classes. And I, I really liked this like programming. And that was like his last, the last class I took from him, I think it was like EE 394 or something. We actually laid out a PCB in that class. Oh, that's cool. So it was a really cool class. It was about microcontrollers. We learned the free scale 9S12 free scale microcontroller in that class. But like the first ones are like transistors and amplifiers and, that kind of like system block design and building on breadboards was like the lab portion of it. But what's really interesting is I don't think it's part of getting it though. Cause my college, you basically took, they changed it since I left, but it was, you basically picked two different specialties that you would go into after your first like year of like general classes. And so I picked embedded system design and image processing was the other one because that sounded really interesting. Now, all the image processing classes ended up being like graduate level, which was insane for an undergraduate to do. But it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot in those classes. It was really hard. And I actually like the last class for that whole tract, I failed once and had to retake it and almost failed it a second time. Oof. What saved me was the labs. On the second time around, I actually knew the la all the labs were the same. And uh, I actually redid all the labs with new code and submitted that. And I actually still got a I got 105 in the lab. No. Oh. And it still almost failed the class. Damn. <laughs> Sounds rough. Those tests were, br I mean, the tests were for graduate level. <laughs> so, like, I get this. I'm like, I have no idea what this is talking about. <laughs> You know, I had hit and miss with graduate level classes because I took, I don't know, I took a few and um, some of them were a joke. Some of them were like, not oh, of mine were okay. a joke, oh, but yeah, some of them were brutal. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Bovic, Alan Bovic, I think he got like a, what's like the TV equivalent of like an Emmy or an Oscar? Oh, shoot. Don't ask me. I'm not the right person for that. Because he actually got one of the... I'm not even be for an Emmy. He got one of those for the algorithm that he developed for, like, compression of video. Really? Yeah. Kind of interesting. I got to look up what award that was. I remember for extra credit for that class, 
you got locked into a room and they just showed you screens. It was like Clockwork Orange. They would show you screens and you have to say if they were good or bad. <laughs> what? You really? Were, we were literally training a machine learning model. This is back in like 07, like 2007. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we were training a machine learning model and we got extra credit for doing that. <laughs> I actually just looked it up at Texas A&M. Both the chicken professor is still there and my Bodhi Pot professor is still, still teaching in the double E department. EM was another class that, man, I busted my ass trying so hard. Yeah, so hard at that, that, class. that class. I studied so freaking hard at that class. And I, I think I got a B in it. But at the end, like, whenever I leave a class, I want to leave being like, hey, I got something from this. Not just it was an uphill battle the entire time. And I feel like EM was an uphill battle. That one was rough. Yeah, our EM class was called Solid State. Hmm, okay. And man, that that was a class I tried really, really hard at and almost failed. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm getting. Like, I went to TA, and I would, it would be like after the test, I'm like, I still don't get half this stuff. And then I would, it would take me like another month to f- get it, in quotes. Yeah, it was that felt like one of the classes that should have been two semesters long instead of one semester. Yeah. Like it just had so much stuff in it that you literally couldn't get through it as a, you know, student doing like 8 billion other things. You know, and sometimes they, sometimes they overemphasize the math behind it. And, and I oh, get you don't that- say, you don't say, <laughs> look, Hey, I was doing equations earlier today. So uh, by hand on paper. So like, look, you're talking to a person who really appreciates it. But what I'm getting at is sometimes they get lost in the weeds and, and some of this stuff that could be done, um, and, and moved quicker. They spend so much time doing algebra up on the board that, you like an hour long class, 40 minutes of it is watching a professor do algebra that it's like, Hmm, that, that was my solid state class in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah. Oof. You know, and, and we, we mentioned Smith charts earlier. I feel like I've never even seen one until the stumbler brought it up on our discourse. And I'm like, I have no idea what these are. Well, okay, so so okay, in relation to our conversation that we had about Bodhi plots, I feel like Smith charts are sort of like the simulation to Bodhi plots like I was doing earlier, where I wasn't actually calculating out the the transfer functions of my stuff and then plotting them every single time I wanted to change my circuit. I would change it and then I would simulate it and then I would see the result. In in many ways, Smith charts do the same thing with transmission lines and RF circuits. And my whole experience with Smith charts was about two weeks at the end of a semester where I'm thinking about the final. I'm not thinking about what I'm learning right then. So I'm, uh, we're learning about these Smith charts and it's like, oh my gosh, so this is a 16 week long class. You completely brutalized us for 12 weeks. And then you show us this piece of paper that solves the last 12 weeks worth of stuff on like a chart that we could just draw circles and, and, and curves on. It's like, thanks dude. This is, that's really nice. And, and I get it. I get it. You have to know the basics and you have to understand like the fundamentals and stuff. But I feel like EM was one of those classes where I was just trying to stay alive. I, I wanted to learn it. Treading like, water. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, in, in our 
discourse. And the professor's you know, the mobster that's got cement on your brick on your feet. Oh, I remember too. After the first exam in that class, I got a seventeen on the exam. That that was the first, and the seventeen curved up to a B, which that just shows what the average was in the class. Uh, but of course, the professor just like mysteriously couldn't make it to the uh, to the class right after the exam, the next one after the exam, because he knew everyone was pissed off at him. It's like, come on, dude. You, you don't just, like, what, that what just, do you gain right. from being an asshole? You no, know? no, no. What that shows is, I was saying with the 17, not the professor not showing up, It the 17 rounding up to a B, what that shows is that class was just fundamentally not designed well. Yeah, I agree. Because, again, probably the majority of the people in that class were like you, barely treading the water to keep alive and no one learned anything from that class. Like actually fundamentally learned anything worthwhile. Okay. Now this is funny. There's one guy in that class, only one who got an 85 on the first exam. This one dude, he knew that EM was a really tough class. It was, it was another legendary one on the, on the A&M campus. EM was super, super hard. So this guy literally only studied for just EM. He basically failed all of his other exams. He was like, I'm going to beat this professor. And he I'm got gonna, an, a, he got an 85. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he got an 85 on the exam and he was pissed. This guy was so pissed because there was a question on there that couldn't be answered. It actually didn't have a solution. Uh, like just, it was guaranteed everyone was going to get it wrong. And this guy, the 15 points he got wrong was that question. And he challenged the TA in front of the entire class about that. And the TA was like, nah, not my problem kind of thing. Dude, drop the class there, right there. Like he just, he just up, grabbed his bag and left. Dude, and we never saw him again. <laughs> I would have complained to the Dean. Yeah. Yeah. About that question. Cause I'd be like, the TA can't solve this. Make the professor solve this for us. No, the, the question didn't have enough I know, um, I know. That's to uh, actually that's, answer. That's what I would go with the, to the dean for. Is I'd be like, yeah. "Hey, the TA won't answer what this question's about. I got 15 points off. What's the answer? Like, go to the dean and ask him that, and see if the dean will actually raise that up. Because that's that's yeah. honestly a bunch of horseshit. It is. It is. Yeah. I actually heard one time of students doing that to a professor. It was a math professor that was just. I don't know, the guy was, uh, who, what was happening in his life, but he was having a real bad time and he was just horrible to the students. And it took the entire class getting together and going to the dean's office and just showing their grades and showing their work to the dean and being like, this guy is just unfair. Like there's a difference between being tough and just being a terrible person. And uh, they actually got that professor... He didn't get let go, but they just moved a different math professor in to teach the rest of the semester. So it, it was funny because the, that professor asked a question, an open book question, mind you. It was an open book question. So you could go anywhere in the book and get stuff. And he asked a question that was directly in the book. Like straight up, there was an example. He asked that exact question. So some of the people in the class found it and they just followed it and wrote it. Yeah. And they all got zeros on that. And the reason they got zeros is the professor didn't like the way they approached the problem. And that was it. Even though they got it right, they did it Wait. exactly the way the textbook is. They did it the way they were taught. And the but professor math, gave them zeros. Math is not supposed to be subjective. No. Or at least what they were teaching I then. I don't like the to be. way you 
Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it's garbage. It's it's absolutely that's super garbage. garbage. That's so, turbo. Yeah. That's that's turbo garbage. <laughs> Next level garbage. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Regardless. Man, I'm gonna have like terrible nightmares of missing like a test now tonight. You know, okay, you know the dream that I have that I still get it on occasion, and man, I wake up in a cold sweat. I get the dream where I'm in college English class and I it's at the end of a semester, like finals are coming up. And then I realized I was supposed to be going to a class this entire semester and I didn't show up to any of them. And the whole dream isn't like, oh no, the whole dream is me trying to figure out how do I pull this off? Like, yeah, no. <laughs> the, the whole I think probably almost every single listener that we have has had that dream. Mine is always an English class. That's mm. that happens with it, it. The funny thing is in college, I actually got A's in my English classes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it's really funny that my brain has picked English as being the, the one that is. And the thing is I halfway, it's always this halfway through the dream. My brain goes, Hey, you've already graduated. They can take away your slip of paper. Cause you missed this class. <laughs> That's when I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's even worse. And I'm like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> they're coming for you. <laughs> Fucking the, the dean is kicking down the door. <laughs> oh man. So okay. So so here's the thing that's funny. All, all of that, all the stories we just said there. I don't really enjoy digital logic that much. I do it whenever it suits what I need to, but I, I'm not really attracted to it. And that was a terrible class for me. EM stuff, I avoid that. And that was a terrible class for me. But like the analog Bodhi plot stuff, I even though it was a difficult class, I loved it. So I don't know. It doesn't seem to have a correlation between like, was it hard? It just seems to be like, was the professor just absolute garbage at relaying the information to me? Yeah. And I mean, I only really took one... I would say even analog class, which was the filter Bodhi pot class because my tracks didn't really pertain to analogs. I'd never really, I mean, I guess there was the EM one, but that one was like, I think every, almost every single electrical engineer tries to avoid EM probably because it's really hard to teach. I was already not doing analog. So I never really got into more analog stuff. And now I know Steven. So I'm like, Hey, Steven, I need a, I need a front end for this sensor. What do you think of this? And he's like, no, use this there you part. Go. Here, I'll give <laughs> you a still, circuit and the Bodhi plot. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I still remember I, I went, it was like when your first, I think this was your second summer up in Colorado and I came yeah, up to visit yeah, and I was working on us. I basically took a week off to work on my own hardware design and uh, I did it in Steven's basement and I remember, I'm like, hey, Steven, I, we need to figure out if we can switch these MOSFETs on fast enough. And so we, he'd be like, oh, let me just simulate it. And we had like eight beers at that point. And we simulated <laughs> it and worked fine. Beers and simulation, that's, they yeah. always go well. I mean, it was literally like a current driver, a resistor, and a FET. <laughs> so there's not much to go on, but it did work. So we were able to switch the FETs as fast as we needed to. You just had enough oomph in your driver, basically. Yeah, yeah. I did have well, a professor. It was one of those, like, we actually all didn't have a lot of oomph, and we were running a resistor in series to snub the, the gate. And so we wanted to make sure we weren't overcurrenting the Yeah, driver. yeah. You know, yeah, you have to have enough oomph for both the resistor and 
the gate charge. Yeah. I had a professor, she was double E, but I guess she did quite a bit of math. She said in her undergrad, they used to play drink and integrate. Uh, and you just drank until you couldn't integrate anymore. And that was the end of the night. And uh, I was like, wow, man, you're a hell of a nerd. <laughs> I do remember having a conversation with her before I left college and telling her that I wanted to do analog electronics. And that was really kind of what I was into. And she was like, Ooh, yeah, no, that's probably not a good idea. It's like, really? Like, you're going to like look at me straight in the face and be like, no, don't go do that? And yeah, I guess she did. I've, I, I've turned out okay, I think. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think that was because that was around the era where microcontrollers were really starting to be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Enough talk about college days. I have a topic here, and it's heat shrink voltage ratings. So I posted this question on our discourse, which is circuit-break.macrofed.com. Go check it out. And so I'm working on the box truck, the solar panels on top, and I'm using like all the correct components, like connectors and the wiring, like this certain wiring that has certain certifications for photoelectric cell insulations and that kind of stuff. So I'm using all those right standards. Oh, like you can't just use any old wire. You have to have like all the certs and stuff. And so I was making the connections off the solar panels longer so I could basically save on connectors. And so I was cutting, splicing, and putting them all together. And I was like, well, the, the wiring's rated for like a thousand KV, a thousand volts, one KV, and like 30 amps. What kind of wire is this? Copper, the wire kind. <laughs> no what I, a, a thousand volt is is not like super standard wiring so well no, i'm saying it's it's wiring that's designed for solar installations okay okay got yeah you. so it's got like a double jacket um it's very uh abrasive resistance a bunch of stuff like if it it's does fancy. catch on fire it's like a very low smoke when it does burn that kind of stuff it's like this it has like 80 different certifications on this wiring. Everything you're saying right there, I just see a dollar sign pop up after everything yeah. you say right there. Well, the thing <laughs> is they make a ton of this stuff now, so it's... Oh, so it, so the price is dropping. Yeah, it's not... It's not. It's more expensive than most wiring I use. I use, like, uh, marine-grade stuff. So I already use expensive wiring, begin with uh, wiring cars. So it's a little bit more than that, but it's not, like, double yeah. cost. And so I'm, like, you know, soldering... And lengthening the wires. And I'm like, well, I wonder what's the voltage rating on heat shrink? Because I'm like, I'm putting this heat shrink on and I'm like, you know, it's technically thinner than the jacket, right? Because this jacket's really thick on this cabling. At first, I looked on the heat shrink because usually on wire, they print the voltage rating on it for the jacket, not stamped on it. It has some like UL numbers and stuff stamped on it. I'm like, oh, I'll just look at the real. Real doesn't mention it. <laughs> and this is actually good heat shrink um, made by WireFi. Anyways, so I started looking around and I found like a heat shrink guide PDF that some company makes. I posted it in our, our discourse and they just give like a list of like materials and like what environments they can be in and types of insulation. So I'm using 
Uh, it's like polyofen adhesive lined, cross-linked, which is like how the the molecules are formed in the in the rubber. Basically, it's not rubber, but it is a petroleum product, I guess. But it says like for that material, it's like in in a wet environment, which is why I'm going off it because it's on a roof rack outside, right? So it can be rained on. It's saying like 200 volts per mil, which sounds really really high. 200 volt. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Well, I'm like, I'm basing this off the thickness of the jacket on the wiring I'm currently using. Oh, yeah, that stuff's probably really thick, right? Yeah, the, the solar panel stuff. So I measured the heat shrink, and of course, you know, heat shrink's really squishy, and so it's really hard to, like, get an accurate measurement. But the heat shrink I was using is, like, 25 mils in thickness, which is, that's, like, 5,000 volts. Shouldn't be a problem, right? I did, like, I basically what I ended up doing was, like, double seal it, with lots of like overlap on the heat shrinking. So like, you know, my, my solder joints only like an inch long, but I have like four inches of heat shrink. So it should be fine. It's been working for the past couple of weeks and hasn't burnt down yet. <laughs> That's the real test, right? Oh, the real test is when I drive across a desert and it <laughs> doesn't catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, I want to ask our listeners and maybe you, Steven, have you ever thought about like the, cause like, cause you, you run high voltage uh, AC stuff in your amplifiers. Yep. So I imagine like the jacket insulation, you've, you make sure that it has enough voltage on that, but has like heat shrink ever crossed your mind is something you have to go check. Not really. Yeah. Cause most of the time when I design stuff with high voltage, I really avoid using anything other than the intended connectors and the intended wires that go to them. Like if I'm ever having to, you know, heat shrink butt joint wires together to extend cables, that's only for prototyping. That's never for anything beyond or anything long life. I, I tried to avoid that. So not really, this is actually the first time I've really even thought of what's the voltage rating. And it brings up a question. Is that voltage rating pre or post shrunk or does it matter? Yeah, I right? don't know. Because when you shrink uh, it, it gets thicker. Right, right. But does it change chemically at all when you shrink it? And therefore, does it change its dielectric strength? I don't know. I'm actually looking right now. I found some information in a place that I wouldn't expect it. But McMaster has dielectric strength for basically all of their heat shrink. And uh, so classic heat shrink has a shrink ratio of either two to one or three to one. And that's like the stuff you get at Home Depot or whatever. And I'm looking at values somewhere in the 700 volts per mil. I'm seeing stuff all the way up to like thousand volt per mil. There's even one up here that's 2000 volts per mil. So this stuff is a fantastic insulator. Yeah. I so wouldn't have ever this... expected to see that on McMaster though, right? Yeah, apparently, yeah, I think... This polyolefin, I think that's how you pronounce it, is just really good dielectric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's better than the jacket on the Yeah, it's better the, than the, the wire. <laughs> One thing I've always wanted to play around with, but I just never had an application or the money to do it, but most heat shrink is two or three to one shrink ratio, but they make them that go all the way up to like six to one. Yeah, the, the stuff I have is four to one. Okay. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. It's really nice for automotive stuff because like, especially where a lot of times you're splicing two wires, the one wire and making a butt junction. Yeah. yeah. That's very common in automotive harness wiring. And uh, so you need the extra heat shrink ratio to 
get around that hump. Sometimes three to one just isn't enough. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I've got small gauge wire that goes to a larger solder tab and uh, it grips onto the solder tab but doesn't fully close onto the wire and it's it's just not as attractive. But I love the adhesive line stuff for that exact reason yes. because it just goops up and then seals the, the whole joint. Yeah, I, I only use adhesive lined. It's only slightly more expensive, but it's it's worth it in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, the only time I don't use adhesive line is if I don't have room to fit because the adhesive line stuff is thicker. And sometimes you're doing like, if I'm doing like fixturing for test equipment, the good thing about that is that that's also like in a lab and it never has to go in a terrible environment where you need the adhesive line stuff. Yeah. And so, but you, when you're trying to like do pogo pins with like 50 mil spacing <laughs> and you need to slide a heat shrink in, in between all those pins, yeah. yeah, you can't really use a adhesive line stuff for that. I, I think the adhesive line stuff... This is just anecdotal, but I, I think it's also resistant to a higher temperature because it's intended to be warmed until the adhesive flows, basically. And whereas regular heat shrink, once it's shrunk, it's done. If you put more heat on it, it blisters and then breaks. Yeah. So it, the adhesive line stuff is more forgiving on top of that. Uh, so I don't know if you can get that. I think that's. That's the best. It is a pain in the butt if you ever need to take it off, though, because with the regular stuff, you can just take an exacto knife, give it a slice, and you know, take it off. Yeah, you know, one thing I need to up my game on is how I shrink it, because I do have a heat gun. It's a Milwaukee M18 heat gun, which is great. Thank you, thank you, mom, for getting that for Christmas for me a couple of years ago. But it's absolutely horrendous at doing heat shrink. <laughs> <laughs> because it can't get it hot enough. Huh? Cause you know, you have you, like the adhesive line stuff. You need to get like the whole wire hot for it to yeah. like normal heat shrink. It's great at, but you have to get the whole wire hot so you can get that adhesive to really stick and get goopy. So right now I just use a little tiny butane torch. That's like, you know, like a, a stick kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that is that you can burn the heat shrink pretty easily. And yeah, because you, you're you're putting a directed like twenty five hundred degree flame. Oh, you know, right on point. it. Yeah. 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 I so kind of have to wave it. But I like it because it's it's also portable. That's why I actually really wanted to try out the Milwaukee heat gun because it was wireless. Wireless. <laughs> it has batteries. You know, I, I find I use my uh, solder reflow station. Yes. As a heat shrink tool more often than I use that as a reflow station. Yeah, I use that all the time, but that's, you know, in my lab. And sure. it's really hard to haul that out somewhere where you're you're doing automotive or trailer wiring. But it does get hot enough really fast. Yeah, and it works really well. Yeah. And you can keep it under the blister temperature of whatever the heat shrink is. Yep. Yep. So I did see that there's like a butane torch that works more like a heat gun. I'm probably going to try one of those out. They also have the fittings that you can put on the end of heat guns that have the the, yeah, the I've grip got one cup on little it. Cup, yeah, 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 and it tries to guide the air around around the wire. I've had mild success with those. Yeah, I've got one of those for that Milwaukee gun. It's just I think those are nice for larger gauge wire. Like if you're if you're wrangling with some like four gauge and you want to put a put heat shrink around it like something like that works just fine you know what mm -hmm. i actually use for when i'm building like battery cables 
Uh, please just tell me map gas. Stove. <laughs> oh, the stove? natural gas okay. stove. <laughs> uh, that works. I just take yeah. the little burner holder off and just start that. Just roast that, it. Well, because, again, you have to get the whole wire hot. Yeah. And I guess I never thought about using the map torch or the propane torch. Because that's the problem with my little butane torch is too directed to get those, like, big battery lugs to seat right. Yeah. Whereas, like, you start your stove up, and you have a flame that's six inches in diameter now. <laughs> and you can really just pass it through and get that whole end of the wire and the lug and the heat shrink up the temp. Yeah. I should just get a proper bigger butane torch probably, though, that's got, like, the cup at the end. That's, like, a heat gun kind of thing. I do like it being wireless, though. So that's why I'm looking at the propane. Or not protein, uh, butane. I bet you could do it with a torch. You just might have to clean up a little bit of soot on it afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I think my gut tells me that the dielectric strength is after it's been shrunk. That's the number you can rely on. The only thing that I, I've dealt with a lot is if you have sharp edges or if you've got protruding things that you're heat shrinking on, it's really easy to pierce through it. And I don't trust the thickness on a sharp edge of oh, yeah. heat shrink at all. I guarantee you it's less than what the what it says it is, you know? Yeah. Always, always make sure that it's your, your solder joint is smooth. Yeah. When you put your heat shrink over it, it's really easy to just break your heat shrink by just shrinking it over a sharp object. Mine's when you rush and you try to slam the adhesive line over it and the joint's still hot. And so it just gets all goopy. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for listening to circuit break from macrofab. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. So long for now. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Circuit Break community discourse hub at circuit-break.macfab.com. <laughs>